0: This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors learn about crypto.
1: Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David. We had a great conversation with Dan Held, and you're gonna hear that today. Dan is working on the Interchange project with our friend Matt Calligan. We love Matt, we love what Interchange is doing. And so Dan and Amanda and I talked about Bitcoin. Dan, if you follow him on Twitter and social media, Dan is a very pronounced speaker and conversationalist around Bitcoin. He's been around Bitcoin for at least five, six, seven years now at this point. Uh, he's been at Uber. He's been at blockchain. Um, and he's had a lot of experience in the space. We talked about the evolution of Bitcoin. We talked about the, the Bitcoin uh, blockchain, and we talked about Satoshi. And we talked about the history. Uh, we talked about the evolution, uh, how Bitcoin has been able to morph and change and will continue to do so. We talked about Lightning. We talked a lot about the kind of the, the, the process of understanding Bitcoin and the importance of Bitcoin. As Amanda alludes to, this is our kind of Bitcoin classic podcast. We have not done one of these thus far, um, but we're very happy to have Dan and uh talking about uh, the subject because it is of importance. Bitcoin has been around for over ten years now and uh in many people's minds it has the Lindy effect. And when you think about crypto from the outside in, one of the first things that you probably know when talk about is Bitcoin. So it was a great conversation. We it was very expansive and it's a long conversation. You're gonna hear a lot about you know Dan's thoughts and how he's perceiving things like the having and the importance of you know looking outside, not just in terms of crypto, but looking at things in terms of biology and uh, evolution, um, and what he's reading and what he's listening to, and how he proceeds to write things, and what he's kind of doing in terms of listening to music and writing to a score. I thought that was really interesting, and I'm going to try to do that now too. Enjoy the the, the conversation. Uh, again, remember that base layer. The information and the thoughts are are not investment advice. Please do your own research. And on the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor. Enjoy. Today's
0: family offices and hedge funds face a number of challenges when it comes to trading and managing their crypto portfolios. On the trading front, siloed liquidity, opaque execution, and questionable compliance deter entry. On the management front, spreadsheet and manual workflows are still the de facto solution. These infrastructure and usability problems, which have been long solved in traditional finance, still need to be addressed in crypto. Lumina has set out to solve this problem. To find out more about Lumina, please go to lumina.app. This is David,
2: and this is Amanda,
0: and this is Base Layer. Today's episode, we have Dan Hell joining us. Dan is a uh, he's part of Interchange, and we had Matt Gallagher on with us recently, talking about the work that Interchange is uh, doing. We're really interested in the processes and the protocols that are putting in place for institutional investors to invest and get further access and transparency into crypto, into the asset class. And so we're really happy to have you on, Dan.
3: Thanks for having me, guys.
2: So one of the things we always like to do is talk about how people got into crypto, but we're, we're less interested in the when and more of the why. Uh, you know, there's... um. You, people tend to come into crypto in groups. So, so the when typically, you know, we we have early adopters, we have, uh, you know, post twenty fifteen, we ha- we have bubblers. So it's less about the when, but why did Bitcoin matter to you, and and what was compelling enough for you to come into the space full time?
3: Yeah. So, uh, well, to, to provide some context, I, I do have to give some time, uh, okay. which is that I, I came in in twenty twelve, and for me, what was exciting about uh, Bitcoin. Was that I didn't know how the tech worked. I didn't know what, <laughs> look, I, I was a non technical individual. I didn't even work in tech, I worked in finance. Like, I didn't know how encryption worked. I didn't, I had never thought about some of these things in, in terms of the construction of how Bitcoin was built. But what I saw what it could do, and with the Silk Road, uh, whether or not you believe in people using Bitcoin to buy certain items. What was magnificent was the, the fact that no one could say no, that it was an immutable transaction. Uh, that combined with the $21 million hard cap made it really, really interesting for me because um, I, I believe that inflation is impossible to calculate. So I really liked the deflationary model or the disinflationary model that uh, Bitcoin has. So those two characteristics to me were really, really compelling. And that's kind of what uh, brought me down the rabbit hole.
2: So this episode is going to be a little bit of a different flavor than some of our other episodes. So we've gone fairly deep into different uh, DAP use cases, different kinds of infrastructure, but we've really never done a Bitcoin classic edition. So we'll touch on some current events later if we have time, but just starting in the fundamentals of what Bitcoin is. um, Tell us about You you know, you touched on immutability and the the disinflationary aspect of Bitcoin. But let's talk about proof of work. Like, what about proof of work uh, feels like the right model for you?
3: Yeah, well, I I wrote an article called Proof of Work is Efficient, which um, for some people... That that was
2: definitely a (laughs) (laughs) lead-in.
3: Nice soft pitch there. Um, (laughs) Yeah, uh, you know, I wrote that because I was a little bit uh, annoyed with the... Uh, kind of really large amounts of FUD that was hitting the mainstream press around Bitcoin's energy usage. Um, and just found it like I found a lot of the proponents uh, that are proponents of proof of stake, you know, really kind of uh, ringing this bell around um, proof of work being wasteful. And I found it really disingenuous and and frankly dishonest uh, by the proof of stake side to to kind of ring that bell and say, hey, look at all this wasteful uh, energy. And so um, I decided to write a comprehensive sort of perspective on proof of work from a layman, from a layman's, uh, kind of, uh, vocabulary and knowledge and set. So I start with, you know, the universe is constructed of energy. Um, the entire universe is energy. And, uh, you know, we have to use energy for everything, whether that be walking down the street or talking on this podcast or creating a book, uh, printing money, uh, keeping bank servers up so you can log into your Bank of America account. All of those things require energy. And so what was really brilliant about Satoshi's architecture of proof of work was that in the physical world, we build walls and, and vaults around things that we care about. And no one would criticize you for doing something like that. In fact, it's, it's prudent. But in the digital world, how do we do that with our digital assets? And proof of work enables us to build a digital wall around the things that we care about, or the Bitcoin ledger. And we use energy in the real world to build that digital wall uh, around the Bitcoin network. And so, I think a lot of people miss that point, and they go, "Oh, well, can we can we shortcut that? Can we can we use less energy?" Um, but that's the fallacy in the argument: is that there is no more efficient use of energy because uh, there is no way to uh, essentially create fraudulent energy you have to provably use energy and there's no way to shortcut that there's no way in physics to shortcut that and that's what protects the network and that's what's so beautiful about it is that in order to um to try to take over the network or reverse a transaction you have to show the proof of work or the proof that energy was spent and there's no way to uh to uh, counterfeit that and that's that's super beautiful and, and for the for the entire world's financial system to rely on a on a single ledger, that ledger should be protected by something, you know, and that something should be the most fundamental commodity of the universe, which is energy. And so that's why I like proof of work.
2: Well, and, and, and there's a little bit of um, a, a misrepresentation around that narrative too, right? So, uh, I mean, while I'm a big proponent of uh, renewable energy sources and, and green power, um, you, you know, the, the idea that Bitcoin's energy. And- Energy uses is the straw that's breaking the camel's back, as I think a, a bit of a, a a false focus as well, right? Um, yeah, you know, totally. I think it's, Bitcoin. Bitcoin isn't destroying the world. Like the, the rest of us are doing a pretty good job on that on our own.
3: I yeah, think that's. You... that's <laughs> I've got I've got two points there. You know, one would be uh, Bitcoin actually incentivizes renewable energy because uh, since Bitcoin takes energy and converts that into Bitcoin. You can put Bitcoin miners around energy sources that are really far away from uh, populations like cities or from industrial facilities. And you know for example, if you built a dam in the middle of China and uh, unfortunately maybe cities weren't built as fast as they as they were projected to have been built, you've got all this excess capacity. and so Bitcoin really, is kind of like uh, your these Bitcoin miners can absorb the excess capacity of the entire world's energy, and when as the Bitcoin network grows and consumes more energy, it might actually incentivize the production of of renewable trapped resources or the better utilization of that energy. So, you know that that's I think really exciting that Bitcoin could actually promote green energy, um, and it's absorbing any waste wasted or or need low-cost electricity. I mean, essentially, Bitcoin miners are hunting all across the world for the cheapest electricity they can find, which is typically electricity that was being wasted before. Um, so I think that's really cool. And in the second point I wanted to make was that, you know, who, <laughs> who has the moral authority to tell me what a good or bad use case of electricity is? Um, and so I, I think people, when they point to Bitcoin and then they go, oh, my God, look at all that electricity. It's like, well, wait a second. How much electricity is used daily watching the Kardashians? <laughs> I mean, I mean, who's if you're if you're out there eating a burger and then someone's eating a salad, like no one walks over to you with a burger and they're like, "Sir, do you know how much energy was used to create that burger?" No, we don't, because that would be absolutely absurd. And we we already have a fair mechanism to to regulate the usage of electricity, and it's called the market. And you pay to use the electricity. So. Uh, Bitcoin is a legitimate use case for electricity uh, because it brings something magnificent to humankind. Um, and to pretend that any of us have the moral superiority to tell anyone what they should do with their electricity is absolutely ridiculous.
0: So I didn't know that we were going to go on this route. And I've had years of being an investor in clean tech. And so I'm interested. So. I believe that you know in a sense what we're seeing in China right now is that China is supporting about 300 EV startups and they're spending billions of dollars supporting those startups to really there's this almost I guess you can call it almost like a space race or you can call it a a clean optimization technology race if you want to call it that. And so That's in just one area. But there are other areas around the world that do not have access to clean technology. They have to use energy production that is CO2 producing, that is producing noxious gas. And they cannot necessarily get access to the things that you and I and other industrialized nations can get access to. But if I'm not mistaken, we also want them to participate in the network. And so what are your thoughts about, is there something that the, the community, that the crypto community can do to affect better change in those parts of the world so they have access to better, cleaner energy sources so they could participate in the Bitcoin network?
3: Yeah, so I think the market is the ultimate uh, efficiency creator. Inherently, capitalism incentivizes efficiency. That's why we have boats, cars, planes, everything around us, medical equipment, food, especially food in the quantities that we have now, because there was a profit-seeking mechanism to where someone went, can I make this faster, cheaper, or easier to use? And everything we have around us is a, is a product of capitalism. Um, so I think Bitcoin incentivizes and kind of promotes the efficient utilization of energy wherever it may be in the world. Um, I don't know if that's going to, you know, I think holistically that helps everyone across the world because it makes it more efficient, which means as things become more efficient and cheaper, it typically opens that up to more markets. Uh, So I think that would kind of be my answer to your question, which would be that that its overall efficiency gains helps everyone. Um, I'm not sure if we can individually kind of choose where it impacts the most because it's Bitcoin is continually hunting for the cheapest electricity. And so that's the path that it's going to follow.
0: And so, I think, as Amanda alluded to, we haven't had like a pure Bitcoin conversation. Um, and so, going deep onto this is going to be interesting for our listeners. And so, one of the key features of Bitcoin is the block reward, having every two hundred and ten blocks. First and foremost, I don't think a lot of family offices and high net worth individuals necessarily understand that. So, if you can go into a little bit more about that. <laughs> And then, you know, how do you think about declining block rewards and how it's going to impact the network? Again, imagine you're talking to a very sophisticated investor in other areas, but they have no idea what you're talking about with this.
3: Yeah, yeah, no problem. I, I know these topics can get a little bit uh, a little bit complicated and a little technical, so I'll try to keep it keep it higher level. Um, so Bitcoin has a disinflationary monetary policy, which means it has a declining rate of inflation, and that that rate is governed by something, um, called, the. essentially it's a combination of, uh, what Satoshi programmed into the code, which is that every approximately every four years you have an event called the havening. And what that means is that the number of Bitcoins produced per 10 minute block or then, and that's called the block reward that drops in half. So for example, if you had, uh, five Bitcoins per block, um, before the block reward, after the block reward, now you only get 2.5 bitcoins per block. And that is a really interesting mechanism that Satoshi created. Uh, Satoshi talks about this too, where Satoshi said, you know, I, I chose a hard cap for two reasons. You know, one, it's impossible to choose an inflation rate. And he he actually, I think he's he kind of cracks a joke, but I'm I'm interpreting here. I'm, I'm very much interpreting. Where he goes, if we could trust a third party to input real world data, <laughs> which is the whole point of Bitcoin is not trusting the third party. Um, so we did it because we can't, we, choosing an inflation rate is inherently a data problem. We just, there's no way to ingest, parse, analyze, and then press levers uh, in order to effectively uh, choose the rate of growth for an economy. And two was that the 21 million hard cap acts as a viral loop. And i of you may know a viral loop as kind of something being you try out Uber for the first time and you share it with your friend. Uh, So you send them a link and they go, hey, check out Uber, and they check it out and then they share it with their friends. That's called a viral loop in the traditional software product sense. So Satoshi built a viral loop into the core Bitcoin product, which is the 21 million hard cap. Uh, In gold mining, as gold demand increases, there's typically a supply response. So as more people want gold, more gold is dug out of the ground. With Bitcoin, that doesn't happen because every 10 minutes, those Bitcoins being produced stays the same no matter how much demand there is. So what happens is we see these boom-bust cycles um, uh, come in ebbs and flows because there is no supply response. And that does something very special because it brings awareness to Bitcoin. So a lot of you probably see Bitcoin as kind of this bubbly, really volatile currency. And that's entirely the purpose. And Satoshi designed it that way because, as he says, as more people buy into it, they tell their friends about it, and they buy into it. And so people come for the speculation, but the people that remain in the, in the bear markets are the ones that are the true believers. Um, so it's kind of Bitcoin's really brilliant viral loop mechanism. Now, over time, the amount of Bitcoins being produced steadily declines. Um, so it's dropping in half every single four years, approximately. And that yields kind of some interesting uh, incentive alignment issues. So Bitcoin miners are paid via that block reward. So they're expending, they bought those machines, all that uh, computing equipment, and they, they went ahead and put those, that computing equipment close to really good ener- cheap energy sources. And so all that, up, that upfront, the capex and the opex cost, you know, they need to be reimbursed with something. And that's what Satoshi created was the block reward. So the miners are paid with both the block reward and the uh, transaction fees that users pay to use the Bitcoin network. So there's a controversy that is it, it, sort of a controversial topic in that people are worrying about, you know, when Bitcoin's block reward drops below a certain value, will miners be incentivized uh, in the same way they are now to protect the network, or will that be kind of a security uh, security gap? So, you know, the uh, the short story is that I did some modeling and thought about some of the basic parameters, uh, which I'm publishing in, in an article in a few a uh, few months. And, you know, essentially, Bitcoin should be fine in a transaction only model where there is no more block reward. Uh, the if you do some back of the envelope math and you look at what happens in 60 years uh, when that event becomes kind of you know 30 to 60 years and that when that uh, kind of crossover to where the transaction fees have to be greater than the block reward, we don't really see you know if you do some basic modeling, if Bitcoin continues to grow in terms of the same magnitude that it's been growing, um, you know not necessarily as fast as it was in the beginning, but And that declining rate of growth, but still an exponential rate of growth, um, that puts us in a pretty good spot. And then, you know, Satoshi commented on this in the beginning, which he's like, "Look, either a lot of people are going to be using it, or no one's going to be using it." And I think he's right. It's a it's a pretty simple, very basic premise, but I think it's a it's a reasonable one. Uh, If Bitcoin is the backbone of the world economy, there should be plenty of transactions going on, and those transaction fees should be plenty to pay uh, for the security of the network in terms of paying the miners to, to use their energy to protect the network.
0: I just have a quick follow-up. Yeah. So one of the narratives, one of the kind of the kickbacks out there is the notion of Bitcoin, obviously being a decentralized network. But when you look at the mining and the entities that are mining, it is fairly centralized, so can you talk a little bit more about that? kind of is it really fulfilling the dream of decentralization if only a small percentage of people are participating in the network?
3: Yeah, so we should define what participation means. I think in this context, partici- participation means mining. Uh, so mining is using your computing equipment with energy to protect the network, and then you're given a reward for doing that, um, which is largely a commercial. Uh, enterprise level sort of process. You shouldn't be doing that in your home. And the reason why uh, it trended that way is that Bitcoin's proof of work uses something, a very, very specific uh, type of processor. And that's called an ASIC, which stands for Application Specific Integrated Circuit. And what that means is that Bitcoin, when you buy Bitcoin equipment, the, the mining mining equipment, it can only be used for Bitcoin mining. Which, which is a really interesting sort of game theory um, problem that Satoshi solved, which is that miners, let's say if you were a malicious miner and you wanted to take over the Bitcoin network, which, which by the way, would only allow you to do certain things. It wouldn't necessarily destroy the network. But let's say you wanted to do that. So you would have to buy all of the equipment and then spend all the money on energy in order to do that. But the problem is to do that, you must be willing to burn the money. So Satoshi offers attackers two things. Satoshi offers attackers, you can either take the money and be good, you can be inherently greedy, as most humans are, or you can choose to burn your billions of dollars that you spent on mining equipment. And so that's kind of the basic, you know, even if things get somewhat centralized, to, to act badly, the the the, the bad actor uh, will have to burn billions, and in the future, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, which isn't very rational, and there's also good actors out there that might detect them doing that behavior, and will bring more mining power onto the network to protect their investment. Um, in terms of the actual centralization numbers, uh, Bitcoin manufacturing, the manufacturing of the Bitcoin miners, is somewhat centralized. However, the the running of those miners is not centralized, and we've seen it become increasingly decentralized over time. And the way that we would look at that or calculate that is the Uh, mining pools or the collection of miners that pool their resources together in order to have more stable uh, rewards or income streams, those groups have gotten more diverse and fragmented over time.
2: Um, So one thing I want to focus in on that you mentioned earlier is uh, that Bitcoin is is supply driven. So from an economic theory perspective, so Austrian economic theory clearly is aligned with Bitcoin and Bitcoin. for people who don't know what Austrian economic theory is, it's basically that that the economy um, and economic activity is driven from the supply side, as opposed to Keynesian economics, which is uh, d- demand driven, um, as well as other economic theories of late that err on the side of Keynesian, but potentially move further left. So, you know, uh, someone who studied economics, um, you, you know, typically like these economic models are, are an attempt to quantify human behavior and a lot of models have historical but not predictive capabilities. And so Bitcoin is interesting with the resurgence of, of an Austrian economic model that, you know, really existed in the early 20th century. So in a contextual capacity, what do you think about the world today that ma- that makes it relevant for an, a currency w- that's inherently based in Austrian economics to exist? Do you think that it'll be fighting you know, you know, setting aside my own economic and political views, do you think that it'll be fighting, um, you know, a, a progressive tide with different economic models, or do you think that that inherently is what allows it to survive? That it'll potentially run counter to uh, the way the global economy moves. I know that's kind of a big question.
3: Yeah, let's see if I can unpack that. Um, so, yeah, I think what we should do is go back to the origins of Bitcoin. I think this might be a good spot to speak a little bit as to why Satoshi, or at least my theory, or Best interpretation as to why Satoshi might have created Bitcoin. We have to go back to the 2008 financial crisis. So Satoshi started working on Bitcoin a few years before that. Um, and we can certainly say that the decade in which Satoshi built Bitcoin was largely random, um, that the year was less random in the month, much less random in the day, very, very, <laughs> very, very precise. Um, so Satoshi decided to publish the Bitcoin white paper on October 31st, 2008, right in the middle of the deepest, darkest part of the financial crisis. And he mentions in the forums that he had been working on it for over two years, um, and then he registers Bitcoin.org, August 2008. So he clearly is planning his go-to-market strategy or his launch strategy for Bitcoin, and he waits till the peak moment of despair. And if you actually look at Google search trends, financial crisis peaks October 2008. So we can say that the year he launched or at least published the white paper was largely random um, and that the month in the day was probably probably well chosen. And I think that he chose October 31st because Halloween, uh, its origins come from Samhain, which is a Celtic festival around the like birth and... Birth and death of a cycle, and I think it's very symbolic of Bitcoin representing the death of the old system and the birth of a new one—a new one that's not controlled by anyone, or or at least has decentralized control in some fashion. Um, when it comes to the the monetary policy of Bitcoin, Satoshi clearly has issues with the existing financial system. Um, in the first block in the Bitcoin blockchain, he writes. Uh, a message, which is the headline from the Times, which says "UK Chancellor on the Verge of Second Bailout for Banks." And Satoshi's first message after the white paper on the forums, uh, he states that you know the root cause of all uh, the root cause of all problems in banking essentially come from central banks. So he's very anti-central bank, um, and and so that's where I think you know Satoshi's really a polymath. He took in uh, crypt- cryptography, game theory, physics. This um, kind of brilliant stitching together of all these different mental models to build Bitcoin, and and when it comes to the monetary policy, what's so interesting about that is that, um, and and when you start working with lots and lots of data, uh, where I spent two years at Uber, where I worked on the global data team and the rider growth team, uh, when you work with tons and tons of data and you start going through this, you realize, wow, you know, like the market is a really chaotic system. Um, I don't know how many people have watched. Uh, benjamin button but there's a special scene that i like there well sorry it's kind of a it's this very sad scene but it means something symbolic around like choosing an inflation rate which uh, she so the one of the characters gets hit by a car and they walk through every step and every other person who interacted with her that day and you realize how random life is you've got someone who you tripped in front of you, and that makes you think about something else, and that changes your purchasing behavior to buy a hot dog versus a hamburger, and and all these chaotic things emerge into prices and, and the economy. And so, for one centralized entity to decide what's the risk-free rate or what is was an appropriate rate of growth is absurd, because they would have to ingest every single data point, including what's in your head. And I mean, I don't know the last time you went shopping, but. I don't know. Sometimes I know exactly what I want, but when I go, you know, get an ice cream, you know, I might look at, you know, vanilla may might be my my typical thing to get, but I see pistachio and I change my mind. You know, so how how can you possibly plan an economy for billions of people across the world when one we can't even ingest like purchasing data points of like credit cards, much less purchasing decisions in their heads. So what Bitcoin does is it kind of it it recognizes you know, with Austrian School of Economics, you recognize the flaws in our models. Um, Keynesian economics inherently is very arrogant. It assumes that we can calculate everything, which is impossible. Austrian School of Economics goes, you know what? Let the market decide. Like we cannot possibly ingest enough data and analyze it to make decisions. And you know, a good example I like to have there that uh, I like to make here is imagine the Fed is driving a car, and the car is the economy. What they do now is they look in the rear view mirror to get historical data. So what's behind us? And they get little bits and pieces of that. They don't even have the complete picture. And then they have, you know, the gas and the brake and the steering wheel. And when they press one of those, it takes like 30 seconds to kick in. So you know, it's it's kind of nuts to think that any centralized entity could do this. And so Satoshi goes, you know what, choosing an inflation rate is impossible. Um in a future state. And so this is kind of out there. This might be a little bit, a little bit too, uh, <laughs> too meta. But let's say Bitcoin works. Let's say it does become the world reserve currency at a hundred trillion market cap. The risk-free rate of return will be you hodling Bitcoin or you holding Bitcoin. And so you holding the risk-free asset. That's the risk-free rate of return. And essentially, the risk-free rate will now be determined by every single market participant, large and small. So small, being like a retail person, like one of like a retail trader, make a, making purchasing, investing, or saving decisions, and by the largest institutions that hold a lot of Bitcoin and companies, their decision to spend, invest, or lend, all of us making that decision will be reflected into the price of Bitcoin, and so that the price of Bitcoin is essentially reflecting the you know the rate of change essentially is the risk-free rate of return. And that price is the compression of all of our purchasing, investing, and and all of our decisions combined. And with that, the market can become really efficient because we can then make decisions based on that, that metric, which the price of Bitcoin becomes the kind of like compression of all market activity.
0: I had a question in regards to You've mentioned Satoshi numerous times, and obviously you've you've done your homework and you're, you're a historian in terms of Satoshi and the, and the Bitcoin white paper. But if you go back into the 80s, specifically 1982, a cryptographer named David Chalm wrote a paper about eCash, about DigiCash, about mixed tables. Hal Finney was working on projects similar to that. So... Talk to us a little bit more about the history, not necessarily Satoshi, but the work that really kind of had to take place years before 08, 09 with the Bitcoin white paper. Because I've, I've had conversations with family offices and other investors, and they believe there was this, as you mentioned, this linchpin moment when the white paper was released, the first block was done, and the world was falling to hell in a handbag. But in all actuality, there was years of cryptographic technological work that was done before that. If I'm wrong, correct me, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about the history, too.
3: Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, Satoshi kind of frankenstein to Bitcoin in terms of the genetic code. You know, if it's like an organism, he, he took little snippets of genetic code from all these other older ideas. Um, you know, Satoshi's brilliant was in putting it all together. In fact, someone could have come up with this probably five years earlier if they had wanted to. And so Bitcoin was predicated based on a certain number of developments. Um, for example, Nick Zabo, a uh, really, really brilliant guy who has uh, he wrote Shelling Out, which I recommend everyone to read, which is around the origins of money. Um, he and he's a cryptographer as well. These are all cryptographers. Uh, he wrote Bitgold, which was a hypothetical cryptocurrency. Or a proposed cryptocurrency back in the day that Bitcoin took some of the parameters of that. Um, there's Adam Back with Hashcash. So Adam Back created Hashcash, which was the idea that maybe your email client, so like your Outlook, should spend a little bit of CPU before it sends an email. For you, the, the the regular business user, you're you're in your you're at home and you have to send you know thirty emails. It's fine. It, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a perceived amount of uh, friction. But for the spam emailers to send billions and billions of messages, it would cost them a lot of money. It would essentially make their business model not work. So uh, Adam Back proposed something called Hashcash, um, which was kind of an, an iteration or an early iteration of proof of work, because you had to spend the CPU, uh, which was the hardware plus the electricity, in order to send that email. Um, uh, Hal Finney wrote the reusable proof of work uh, sort of early early concepts, which was around taking like a hash cache or taking like a a proof of work and then being able to reuse that or send that to someone else. Um, So these were all like kind of components that eventually became Bitcoin. Um, And so Satoshi kind of stitched them all together. But yeah, I mean, this tech was largely written about from 1970s, 60s, 70s, all the way up to like 2000s, early 2000s. And Satoshi took that all together, thought a lot about it and put it all together.
2: So we we've kind of done a deep dive into the Bitcoin Classic edition, but let's uh, step away from Bitcoin into the broader crypto ecosystem for a little while. So I know you wrote an article last month, which is you know eons in crypto time uh, about quantum <laughs> narratives. I know it's funny. We think of we I think of end of January, and while that's not that long ago from a personal perspective, it's like in crypto you know the world the world has the the world has tilted on its axis but when you think about um one of my favorite things that you wrote about was a comparison of the the cambrian explosion to the emergence of, of this giant crypto boom so can you talk to us a little bit more about that comparison
3: yeah so you know bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency created and i think a lot of people you know look and they look to find analogies with um with like the existing tech world of like oh the MySpace versus Facebook, uh, but I think a better way to think about it is like a genetic organism. <clears throat> you know, does it have the genetic traits as money? Uh, which you know those traits are are you know essentially what we see on the surface uh, due to the gen- genetic code that it has. Um, do the traits you know the, the, does the traits it has as has it have as money? Um, will those give it a competitive advantage to survive? And so we've seen. Uh, bitcoin when it emerged as the the only organism in the new cryptocurrency as a as a species type like a, a genus um many many more were created after it some people took took bitcoin's genetic code and 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 took a little tiny tiny deviation or they 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 took out some parts or they spliced it uh with maybe new code and so we've kind of seen that we've seen this cambrian explosion um this kind of like flourishing of different types of uh, species of money. Um, But like the Cambrian explosion, uh, only the species with the superior genetic traits will survive. And as we've seen in 2014, which was the first big uh, Cambrian explosion in the crypto space, uh, and the second one was 2017, um, as we've seen with both of those, you know, these are essentially kind of uh, explosion phases and then also big mass mass extinction phases and I think when you look at uh, bitcoin's genetic code it it has been engineered so precisely and and so in such a nice basic manner because a lot of bitcoin's functionality is very simple and that uh, that that's very effective because complex things can emerge from simplicity and having something simple on the base layer for like the world's financial system is incredibly important. And so Bitcoin has largely survived, the, uh, it has survived and thrived through these Cambrian explosions of, uh, of, of uh, other crypto life forms, um, which makes me very bullish on Bitcoin's outlook long-term. Uh, if one of the earlier species had taken over Bitcoin right away, then I think this, in, this the crypto world would be dramatically different. I'm not sure what it would be like um, But due to Bitcoin's ability through its superior genetic traits, uh, genetic code and traits to survive and thrive, makes it anti-fragile. So as it's weathered these attacks from the other species, it has become stronger and stronger, uh, which is really, really fascinating to see.
2: Well, so to push back on that for a second, though, if you think about the Cambrian explosion, if if I'm remembering my, uh, my biology lessons from many moons ago correctly, that's the uh the the emergence of multicellular life, particularly um, you know, or, or early plants and then later animal reproduction, there's not a single organism alive today that you can date back to the emergence of the Cambrian explosion. So, you know, if you're using that narrative for Bitcoin, will Bitcoin be around in, in whatever the next iteration of crypto is?
3: That's a great question. And uh, to be clear the the bitcoin genetic code is not the same as it was when it first started so bitcoin has a evolutionary advantage where it can it can benefit from something called horizontal gene transfer where if it sees genetic code from other species that it likes it might take a little bit and then absorb it so it is constantly evolving and tweaking itself to be the most um, most you know uh, fittest uh, most efficient uh, most lethal species out there
2: so bitcoin's a parasite really that's where we are.
3: I'd like to think of it more like a predator but yeah
2: <laughs> predator predator versus parasite um,
3: <laughs> so
2: you, you, you have to push buttons there
0: <laughs> I so we're talking about you know this notion of evolution of Bitcoin being able to fork and pick up pieces and evolve and become stronger, better, faster. And so looking into what has happened over the last five years with Ethereum launching in around 2014 or 15, with some of the other protocols launching, either forking and or launching, um, with proof of work versus proof of stake, which is now what Ethereum is moving towards. Talk to us a little bit, if you can, some of your feelings about the state of the state of things like decentralized applications, dApps. Do you believe in that usage and do you see there being protocols and platforms that are being built that are meaningful? Um, Are there any use cases that in... 2019 that you're excited about in terms of other chains that are being built right now. Talk to us a little bit about some of the diversity that you're seeing away from Bitcoin.
3: Yeah, so some of the other some of the other coins out there are looking to be more like smart contract platforms or uh, a platform, you know, a decentralized platform for DApps, which are decentralized apps, and that would be like an example would be Ethereum, which is a popular one, and you know, coming from my background is in mobile growth, um, so I'm very intimately very intimately understand what it takes to ship, launch, and maintain both startup scale products and products at like Uber scale. Um, when it comes to the platform that you build on, it has to be scalable and it has to be. Uh, it has to be developer friendly, and so Ethereum made it developer friendly. They they essentially built a lot of good developer tools for developers to go build these these DApps or these decentralized apps that would enable you to do things where maybe like a you know it's an application where the company doesn't control it, which is kind of cool. It's like a, like if you owned your data with Facebook, sort of, it would be a good analogy, um, or like a sports betting platform, um, but while all those ideas i think are very exciting and i think uh, ethereum did a good job building developer tools uh, they're all very they they can't really scale at all right now uh for example a product i built in 2013 uh, zero block uh has more daily had more daily active users in 2013 than all of the ethereum dApps combined um and that's not a good thing that's a uh, we're not just magnitudes off we are light years away, and that's in terms of the core the core scaling on the protocol so that's just like the code working enable you know that you can do so many so many people can open the app at and, and use the product at a certain time that's not even touching usability uh, crypto is very complex and weird and you know it took me a long time to get where I am but the usability hurdles are massive as well. So, in addition to scaling problems, you have uh, usability problems. I think the usability problems over time will be fixed. Scaling is a little bit tougher um, because in, typically the trade off that you make with scaling is that you include more trusted third parties, which then decreases the utility of having adapt to begin with. Um, that's an oversimplification, but it kind of, for, for the listeners, I think that's kind of a, a TLDR. Um, Things I'm excited about, though, would be like betting or gambling. I think having people speculating on market activity is always fruitful, whatever that activity may be. If it's a sports game or certain people being voted in, I believe that there should be marketplaces for all of those. Uh, So, you know, a company called Augur built a protocol called Augur uh, that essentially facilitates some of that. Uh, You know, right now, the usability is very poor it can't scale but i think it's one of the more interesting concepts out there and is one was one of the first apps ever created just to follow up
0: we had an interesting conversation with a founder just yesterday and in that conversation we talked about her ability to effectively escrow funds on chain so on the bitcoin blockchain or on ethereum and Within that mechanism, she talked about using on Bitcoin's blockchain script. And so Ethereum is a Turing-complete system that enables smart contracts, which in theory were supposed to be able to provide greater utility than, say, Bitcoin, which is in many ways digital gold, a form of of payment, a a form of self-sovereignty, if you will, um, which is obviously incredibly important. if you can dive a little bit into that, there's been notions and there's been tinkerings around with Bitcoin in regards to RSK and Ivy. Are you in the camp that believes that Bitcoin should stay away from kind of implementation or furthering script?
3: That's what's uh, great about Bitcoin's core development philosophy. And the, and it also speaks to the maturity of the entire Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, I view both kind of similarly tackling the same that both both like Ethereum and Bitcoin long-term kind of similarly attacking the same problem. But Bitcoin and the Bitcoin community, which includes the core developers, they've decided to take an incredibly mature, long perspective. And and that's how you build good products. Um, You start with product market fit. Well, what's the best product market fit for blockchain tech? Well, it's an immutable, hard to seize currency. Um, and, And you're starting from there and then you can iterate and add new features uh, that would increase the usability of the protocol to do really cool things like more advanced smart contracts or uh, processes that you know that are really, really, really um, kind of they need to be enabled through like better scripting. Um, Bitcoin fundamentally, though, I think disagrees with like Ethereum that any sort of processes should be run on chain um, that more of that should happen offline, and then the validation of that that smart contract gets printed on chain. For example of that would be MAST, M-A-S-T. And essentially with MAST, uh, the only condition of the smart contract that was met, that that condition is the only thing that is printed on chain. So every other condition in that smart contract isn't printed on chain, um, which does two things. One, it preserves privacy. So for example, you know, if I had some sort of structure set up where if I died, my money would move to someone, well, Maybe it's good that no one knows who it didn't end up going to. Uh, so one is privacy, and two is is uh, efficiency and scalability. So you know, if I had a really complex smart contract with a, a thousand different conditions, well, maybe only three conditions are met, and that's what's printed on chain versus a thousand conditions, which would mean if all thousand of those were printed on chain, we'd have to store that uh, across all the Bitcoin nodes forever for the rest of time, <laughs> and so. So the efficiency of it, I think Bitcoin is, is more focused on validation, verification, and then only printing on chain on layer one. Uh, what is the minimal amount of data to, to print on chain or to store on chain? Because uh, Bitcoin, I think, is very cognizant and very mature around keeping things as efficient as possible, because that means everyone can run their own full node and and check the network out themselves and publish transactions directly to the network without having to trust anyone. And I think that's an important parameter.
2: Uh, so, we're going to switch gears and move into a new segment that we've been doing towards the end of our show. Uh, it's a speed round called Signal or Noise. So, the basic premise is that we'll name something that's going on in the crypto ecosystem and you'll tell us signal or noise. Um, so, starting Let's with do it. Bitcoin ETFs.
3: Uh, hugely bullish. Right now, uh, with your 401k, you cannot buy crypto, uh, especially Bitcoin. So signal signal huge signal i think it's a ways away though
2: okay uh the the first upcoming Tezos proposal vote to reduce the baker
3: reward uh it sounds like the fomc um not a signal
2: okay uh lightning network adoption
3: lightning is great uh, big signal it eats up all the this is a good example of horizontal gene transfer uh, Lightning essentially destroys all the use cases for cryptocurrencies that are claimed to be faster, or cheaper, or more private than Bitcoin. Lightning essentially enables all of that on Bitcoin. Uh,
2: consensus twenty nineteen, um, consensus conference, not the company.
3: Should be interesting. Uh, I think we're in, the, you know, we're in the middle of a bear. Um, I, I think neutral. Okay. JB Morgan the- Coin.
0: Oops, I yeah, want to do one. It. <laughs> Morgan it. Coin.
3: Uh <laughs> you know what, what come on, Dan, tell saying, us what you think. come on how, how does the Gandhi saying go? It's like first they laugh at you, then they then they something, and then they uh you know it's essentially this this is a stage in in the sort of uh you know first they make fun of you and and then they're like, and you're a criminal, and then now they're like, "Oh, blockchain tech might be interesting," and then JP. Morgan pops out a coin, so I think it's a I think it's bullish, I think it's a validation of of the whole space.
2: Um, And the last one, maximalism and religious crypto, signal or noise?
3: Signal. I think everything in life is is narratives that we've bought into, whether that be government, religion, money, or or relationships, you know, sort of like marriage structures. Um, These are all largely things that we've bought into. So everything in life is quasi faith-based.
0: I have one last one. Bitcoin price from 2018 or to the end of 2017
3: to now? Uh, it's a normal market cycle. It's been my third. So uh, I think it's Signal. I'm, I'm ready to accumulate more at the bottom.
2: Okay. So um, and one more thing we've been doing at the end that's been pretty popular is getting to know you. So we've spoken a lot about crypto and your beliefs, but we want to know more about you know what makes you tick and what's inside your head. And we found that you know, two of the kind of the best things for that is uh, what you're reading and what you're listening to. So um, from a reading perspective, it doesn't necessarily have to be a treatise on Austrian economics, although I I, I bet that you are reading one of those. But um, what's one of your favorite books that you've read in the last few months? And what kind of music are you listening to right now?
3: Yeah, so I actually score every article that I write on Medium, I score them all with a song, because I think that the reading experience when you read my articles should be even more in depth and kind of more entwined with like the human experience. So uh, that that style of, style of music is called uh, ambient. Uh, largely, what you would consider to be like movie soundtracks. Um, I think that's kind of the easiest way to phrase that. So that's the sort of music that I listen to mostly. Uh, same with like EDM and house music, uh, which is so largely electronic. Um, and then when it comes to books, I have a ridiculous ridiculously large stack of books (laughs) next to my bed um where i'm afraid i'm I'm getting to a point where i'm buying more books than i'm finishing so i've got to figure out how to deal with this but um you know i I think kind of the general theme because there's there's quite a lot of books in iq the general theme would be human behavior um uh there was one like the uh, the true believers by eric hoffman which i'm reading which points to kind of the religious fact um, I read a synopsis and found it to be fascinating, and so I want to read that.
1: Uh, what about, so like, Daniel Kahneman? So kind of uh,
3: like, Thinking Fast and Slow? Uh, yeah. So that's also a book on my <laughs> in my stack. Um, but something kind of more interesting, and kind of might be more, I don't think a lot of people thought about it, is thermoeconomics, um, using thermodynamics to think about the economy. And so... I've really, really been spending a lot of time reading into that, and that's something I'd like to write about later this year.
2: Okay, great. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this is certainly going to be uh, an interesting and, and, a, and hopefully informative one to bring out since it's our, our first real Bitcoin focus. So um, hopefully we'll have you on again sometime later this year, and we, we can see where Bitcoin's gone and push some more of your
3: buttons. <laughs> sounds good to me i had a bunch of fun and uh, really appreciated all the questions
2: and um for all of our listeners if you want to get more information about interchange which is the project that dan is working on um you can go to interchange
3: interchangehq.com.
2: hq um, as well as you can find dan in the trenches of crypto twitter if you search for dan help
0: <laughs> yep all and, right well and, thanks for joining us and and make sure that you spell it H E D L.
3: <laughs> yes, there's a uh, terminology what they're referring to. If the listeners don't know, it's a uh, hodl is kind of a uh, a joke or kind of a rallying cry of the industry, which means to hold your bitcoins. And my last name, coincidentally, was Held, so I go by Hedl uh, sometimes. It was
0: like a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me, guys.